another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing times and the changing world and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dictated a bit differently today, instead of being in my car on my way to Frisco, Texas, I've decided to duck and cover from the nasty storm clouds that are coming. Uh, stay home today, and that'll also give me time to pack because this evening, as soon as my wife gets home, we are off to the bug out location in Arkansas. We are bugging out, and it's not really a bug out, it's more of a vacation. Uh, so uh, we're taking a little extra long weekend, we're taking a Friday and a Monday off, but I've got you covered on the Friday. Won't be a show Monday next week. Um, might be, I'm going to try to get something done today, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but uh, may not be a show Monday. But tomorrow you continue to hear Dave Wendell uh, from Bushcraft on Fire. And it was just a great interview done last night, and I've banked it for you for tomorrow, so you won't be without a show. And uh, please tune in for that. Dave is an awesome guy. Uh, with that said, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Number one, today is Thursday, October 29th, 2009, and this is episode 306. That's pretty cool um, that we're that far along in things. And by the next time that you hear me with a new show, other than the recorded one for tomorrow, it will be November and the year's almost out. Let's think about that a little bit with our plans, our preps, and things like that. Uh, next, make sure you're supporting our sponsors. As always, our sponsors are personal endorsements from me. They are not just people that show up with a check in hand and want to advertise on the site. There have been people turned down. There is a process they have to go through. That is to ensure quality, to make sure uh, that they are the type of people that I can confidently recommend to you. Uh, that is definitely the case with the two sponsors of the day today. Number one is SQA Experts. These guys make really innovative body armor. I really recommend you check them out. If you don't have use for body armor in your civilian applications, if you know a law enforcement officer anywhere, please refer their sites to them. I think this is a, a product that can really help law enforcement officers beyond the vest. All right. Uh, next company of the day, sponsor of the day is Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool stuff, folks. That's all I can say about Sawtooth. Really cool stuff and really great service. They go out of their way to make things right whenever there happens to be a mistake. And we all know mistakes happen, but when one happens, these guys bend over backwards to fix it. That's the kind of people that you want to be doing business with. Um, last but or next, I would say consider joining our forum. Please get involved with our forum. Leave it at that today. Um, also, I want to say, if uh, you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content that's available only to members, uh, along with about $80 worth of free retail value on day one. So that covers your membership for the first year. Um, before I get into the main topic of the show today, I want to remind you guys... Uh, I am trying to drum up a whole bunch of YouTube channel subscribers, and I'm starting to put out a lot of YouTube videos. Uh, yesterday I did too. I finally did the long-awaited video on the Cato Voyager radio. I didn't really want to do it because I just beat the thing to hell. I just beat it up. Here's why it's a piece of junk is a 10-minute review. Um, but it's 
actually pretty cool review now that I watch it. it was, I guess it was worth doing. And maybe it'll save some of you guys some money by not buying that thing. And I did a good review for the uh, Coleman Max um, 3 AAA LED flashlight, which is a great little light. Uh, and it's really very reasonable. It's only 30 bucks. So uh, they're there. They're on my YouTube channel. You can find the YouTube channel at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Check it out. Please subscribe to my channel. If you're, you don't have a YouTube account, you can't subscribe to my channel. So if you don't have a YouTube account, trust me, you're missing out. Set up a YouTube account. Start subscribing to channels uh, like mine, like Dave Wendell's, which is Brushcraft on Fire, like uh, uh, Dave Canterbury's, which is Wilderness uh, Archery Outfitters. Start checking. I mean, Ron Hood has a channel. There's so much great free content on YouTube. Please avail yourself of it, and please become my subscriber. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. What I have for you today are 18 prepper items, gear as it were, I, or items that you should have in your home or your car. Some of this stuff is very, you know, maybe outdoorsy sounding oriented stuff that goes in a bug out bag or things like that. Some of this is very practical. Let me tell you what's not in here. Food's not in here uh, because we all know that. Uh, guns are not in here because we all know that. So please don't flame me in my comments and say, but Jack, you didn't say anything about food. How can you not say anything about Well, because I hope that you're there. Uh, some of these are things that we all know about and think about on a regular basis. Some of these are things I think that we overlook. And some of them are things that maybe everybody has, but people don't realize how they apply to their prepper lifestyle. So I thought that would be an interesting show today, kind of an easy show for me to put together before I get out of here on a vacation. And uh, But we're going to start out with something uh, that is one of my favorite tools in the world. Now, I've traveled a lot, folks, and I know, and uh, you know, when people ask me about a survival knife, I'm never big on the term survival knife. I think it's marketing spin, and I think that you should never put yourself in a position where you're really trying to do it all with a knife. A knife is a great tool. I think everybody should have at least one or two really good quality knives and a whole bunch of cheap ones all over the place so you're never without a knife because um, the knife has so much utility. But for survival purposes, um, what I've seen in indigenous peoples across the globe that when you see them relying on one tool more than anything else, uh, some of the places they'll actually call it a knife, but it's a machete. And I think it is probably, if you want something to put in a bug out bag, if you want something to go with your camping, wilderness gear, if you want something around the house to use for anything from clearing some brush in the backyard to, if you have to, defense, the machete is the way to go. And I think if you look at indigenous peoples, you'll see that that's, you know, that's one of the first modern tools as soon as they learn about steel that they get their hands on. And there's places in the uh, in South America where kind of a boy becomes a man the day he can procure and start using his own machete. And uh, for that reason, I think you should have one, too. I actually have a pretty cool little machete right here that I'm playing with while I uh, do the podcast today since I'm not driving. I guess I need something to do with my hands. Um but it's the Gerber Gator Machete. And I'll be doing a review of this for the YouTube channel while we're at our bug out location because I can actually get out there and cut some things with it. But it's a nice machete with a really beautiful handle on it and a sawtooth back uh, that is actually works a pretty dadgone good sawtooth. I can highly recommend this, I'll tell you that already. I have the shorter model, which I think is a little bit more convenient, but I sure as heck think the larger model has a lot more chopping power and things like that. But if you actually want to carry it on your belt, the, uh, the shorter gator is a good thing to look at. Uh, but I don't care if it's a, if it's a cheap old uh, 
you know, garden variety machete. I still think it's a better overall tool in the bush, in the wilderness, or even in the backyard than the knife. There's things that a knife can do for you that a machete can't. It's really hard to skin an animal with a machete. It can be done, especially something big like a deer, but small game. It, it, it's very, very complicated, very, very difficult. Uh, intricate carving, cutting, uh, making notches, things like creating deadfall traps, not the place that a machete excels, but for everything else, far superior. I even like the machete better than the axe or the hatchet, even though that's on the list a little bit down the road, and we'll talk about that as well. So I really recommend you consider you know, adding machete to the things that uh, you consider your preps and your day-to-day useful items as well, your day-to-day tools. Next is lighting. Um, like I said, I just did the review on the Coleman Max light. I did a review last week on uh, Sylvania Power Failure light, which looks like a little thing. It's like a night light. You plug it into your wall. If you check out my YouTube videos, you'll see it. But when you turn the light out, it has a little night light cap, like always, that comes on. But if the power fails and you have it set on auto, what happens is it immediately turns into a three LED flashlight. It's a pretty bright little flashlight, and the bottom end lights up with this flashlight. Well, you can now grab it, pull it out of the wall, and carry it around like a flashlight. I think that's a great tool. I think everybody should own at least a couple of the LED lanterns that run on bat- plain old batteries. Uh, those things last a really long time on one set of batteries. So one of those with one or two extra sets of batteries per unit is going to give you an awful lot of light. And remember, you're not going to be leaving them on running continuously. You'll only use them as needed if you're in a lights-out situation. Uh, long term, I think it probably makes a good uh, bet to have a couple of the LED lanterns that are the hand-crank varieties. Some of those allow you to use batteries or the crank. That's fine. I still say the dedicated battery ones seem to do better with their batteries overall. So I would say get both if you have the financial means to. That gives you four light sources short-term and two light sources long-term that are better than a flashlight. They're something you can stand up and kind of illuminate a room with. Um, I'm also very big on creating backup power sources, but we'll talk about that in a little bit with some different ideas. Um, but for your lighting, those are your big things, is your lanterns and your flashlights. I also like the lanterns that burn uh, propane. And I think if you have propane available, if you keep a large, like some people live out in the country, have a great big propane tank, well, heck, you could set that up so that it actually direct feeds into a couple lanterns. Certainly not a bad idea. I've seen some pretty cool trees that hold a, uh, a Coleman uh, propane lantern up over a standard gas tank for a grill, and then that gives you some more utility. I like those too. I don't really want to rely on them long term, but they're a good short term fix. They're great out on a camping trip. Um, but what's really cool, and I think people should avail themselves, is is oil lamps in the home. I mean, most of America illuminated their home before the advent of electricity with oil lamps, and there's a great reason why. They're highly efficient. A little bit of oil goes a long way with an oil lamp. Uh, They provide a great deal of light for a very small flame. As long as you're sensible about how you treat them, they're actually very safe. Now, if you take a glass oil lamp and smash it to the ground while it's on, can it spread fire? You bet it can. It certainly can. But if you think about what you're doing and where you place it and you don't put them in dangerous areas, I think uh, not only are they a useful, you know, let's call them a survival tool or prepper tool, I really like the ambiance they create on, you know, just on an evening instead of lighting candles, light a couple oil lamps. It's really cool. So those are some different ways to provide lighting. I guess the big thing to take away from this is make sure that you have multiple methods to provide supplemental lighting if the power goes out. 
generally speaking, with the way your luck falls, it's pitch dark when the lights go out. It doesn't happen at 4 o'clock in the afternoon very often. So you don't know where you're going to be in the house, and it might be great that you have a nice little cache downstairs uh, up on a shelf with four great LED lanterns in it, but you got to get to them without busting your toe, tripping over the dog, scaring the kids, falling down the steps, breaking your neck. You got it? So it means to have multiple ways to create light sources for yourself uh, close at hand. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to kind of my uh, my next item on the list, and that is a, is really a plethora of items, a combination of items. But I think everybody should have at least one or two of these at their disposal uh, when they become necessary. And even if nothing major ever happens, you're going to at least deal with power failures, and you're probably going to have them come, become necessary, unless that is you have a gas stove. And even with that, you could lose gas service. It does happen. I used to work in underground construction. We cut gas service off a couple times, not intentionally, uh, but it did happen. So that's something to be aware of. So what I'm talking about, of course, are grills, portable stoves, and even the uh, the vaulted solar oven. I think the solar oven is one of the best investments that you can make, either if you purchase them, and if you purchase a good one, they they're, they're tend to be expensive. Uh, I have a Global Sun oven. It was almost, with all the stuff and with it, it was almost $300. Bucks. Um, I'm not crying about paying for it, though. I think it was a good investment. You can build them for under 50 bucks. I don't care how you do it, but having a solar oven is a great way uh, to have a method to cook. As long as the sun shines, you can cook. And you can cook a tremendous variety of food in a solar oven. I don't know why there's so many YouTube videos of people heating hot dogs up in them. Um, I make... uh, a pork and apples with uh, a pork roast with apples and onions is just amazing. There's a video of that on my YouTube channel. Um, I've made ribs that absolutely destroy um, ribs off a grill. They're so tender and moist uh, with a little bit of barbecue sauce added to them at the end. It's just absolutely amazing. And I actually even do take those ribs after they're done and throw them on the grill just for a couple seconds to crisp the outside. But uh, they're, they're just a, a phenomenal way to cook. I think it's a good idea to have at least one little camp stove. Uh, little micro stoves that go on top of the butane canisters are a great little way. Um, creating some of your own, the kind of the hobo stove, rocket stove effect. Nothing wrong with having that available to you in addition to these other things. I think that uh, everybody in America should own a grill. We, we are the grilling capital of the world. Um, other than Greece, if you want to see a place where people grill uh, every evening on, on you know a sat- a Saturday evening, it's, it's Greece. All the guys line up their cars and set the little hibachis up and grilled old school style. and That's really cool. But I think we should be the grilling capital of the world. And I'm a big believer in... I don't care if you have a charcoal grill or a propane grill. I prefer if you only have one propane. And I'll tell you why you can store fuel uh, to go longer, easier, cheaper, and with less space. Because uh, three propane tanks, let's face it, folks, three standard grill propane tanks will take you a long time um, into the future with cooking. Uh, charcoal to do the same amount of time is going to take a lot more space. You have to worry about it getting wet. I have nothing against charcoal. I have known a charcoal grill and a gas grill, and I keep a stockpile of charcoal as well. But if I have to make a decision between the two, it's propane. It's a lot more efficient. It gives you a lot more options, and I think one of the things you definitely want on your propane grill is a good side burner. That gives you the ability to replace a stovetop a lot more efficiently than just cooking on top of the uh, the stove surface. So those are my thoughts there. Moving on, I think another thing that maybe you really need to think about as you move into the future, as you keep increasing your food storages, well, how can I increase my food storage without going to the store? 
how can I start storing more of the food that I produce, food that I harvest from the field, be it from foraging, be it from hunting, be it from fishing. And one of the best methods of food preservation that I know of is canning. So a good pressure canner. And don't skimp out and go cheap on a pressure canner. Don't buy one of those little $40 ones at Walmart. It's not big enough. It won't do enough. The, the, the seal's a pain in the butt. Let's call it a pain in the ass because that's what it is. Those, those rubber seals and sideways things are a pain in the ass. Um, get yourself a good one with the screw-down clamps. Uh, no rubber gasket in between. Uh, metal to metal. That's the way to go. It'll set you back a couple C notes. Um, but... When you start to think about, well, once I learn how to can and I have that skill and I get the jars and the lids and the rings and I start to do this, how much food can I put up for next to nothing for the cost of boiling water from my garden and from what nature provides for me? And you start to realize that it immensely increases your storage capacity. And even if you're buying the food, uh, let's say you go down to the farmer's market about this time of year, you'll probably see beautiful green beans, just for instance, for about 80 cents a pound. Or less, because this is when they're trying to get rid of them all while they're fresh. Well, you could buy a ton of those and can them up, and you have you, you've gotten them probably the day the guy picks them, he brings them to the farmers market, and you're canning them on the same day. You're creating additional storage capacity for yourself. So to me, that pressure cooker, yes, it's an investment, but it's some, a good pressure cooker. Um, you know, if I could get my dad to give me my grandmother's, uh, she got it from her great from her mother. So that was my great grandmother. So that pressure cooker that my great grandmother bought back in the turn of the century is still working. That's something that you hand down for generations if you buy good quality. There's no reason that they'll ever wear out. They're they're designed to last forever. Um, not a great business to go in if you're looking for repeat orders from repeat customers. So I think that's a great long term investment and the knowledge that goes along with using it. The next thing I think you need to have is radio. And uh, I think we get a tendency today to rely on the Internet for our news and our alerts. We rely on the television for our news and our alerts. We rely on all this technology. And then we don't think about the fact that when the power goes out, none of that stuff works. So good, simple, plain radios. Again, I did a review of the Cato Voyager. You're not going to want to buy that after that review. I'll do a review soon on the Grundig. I think it's FS200, FR200. It's the little Grundig I have. That's a great little portable radio. Uses batteries plus a hand crank feature to charge itself up. Gets good reception. I think you should have at least one radio like that. Um, I'm okay with the combination devices, but I think you should really get something like the Grundig that's dedicated to it. I have a great little uh, LED lantern that has a radio built into it. Um, I bought it because it's an LED lantern. The radio's okay. It's very hard to hear. You plug an earpiece into it, you hear it pretty good. I'm glad it's there, but I'm not going to rely on it as my radio. That's why I have the Grundig, and I think I'm becoming more and more a believer and a, a purist in having. It's great that we can create items for ourselves as woodsmen uh, that have multiple purposes, but when you're buying a piece of gear, buy a dedicated piece of gear. If it has extras, fine, but buy it for a single purpose and make sure it does that purpose well. So with an emergency radio, that's my advice. Having some additional radios that just use batteries, nothing wrong with that. Dirt cheap to buy them today because nobody wants them anymore. Uh, additionally, I think it's a great idea to have some sort of a weather radio that's designed for weather information. One of the biggest threats we face. Once the power goes out, the threat of the storm is not gone. You still need to know what's going on. So I really recommend that you have that. And while I'm on this, I'll throw in, I think if you are on satellite, or cable, um, you should also get yourself a good set of rabbit ears. 
test them on your TV uh, or you know some type of antenna. See if you can get any stations in, and if you can, great. And I don't care if you put it away and you never use it, but uh, during a severe weather event, a lot of times satellites are just blocked out, and you may not want to know what's going on. You can throw that antenna on there and get your local broadcast stations or cables damaged. Uh, the, your satellite dish can come off because of wind damage. Um, your poles uh, on the road that bring your cable TV to you can be smashed to the ground in a weather event. So if you have those, if you are fortunate enough to lose television signal, but you still have power, or possibly you have backup power to run a small television, you can still find out what's going on from your local television stations. So I'll throw that in with radios there, because we're talking about what? A $20 investment for a set of rabbit ears. The next one is, um, I already started out with a machete, but I also think you should own uh, a good axe hatchet or tomahawk or a couple or one of each or whatever floats your boat but I don't think anybody should be without a good axe hatchet or tomahawk there's some real advantages to them um, machete some states consider a machete a great big knife and it's it's governed under their knife laws some don't please check your own laws in your own state to be sure um, but I don't know I don't know and I could be wrong so check your laws as well any state that considers a hatchet or an axe, a knife, and governs it with a knife law, with a length restriction or anything like that. Because here's the reality. In Texas, I can't carry a knife with a blade greater than five and a half inches. It used to be six. Somehow they sneaked a change in there on me. Um, five and a half inches, unless I'm engaged in some sort of activity that requires the use of that knife, like the pursuit of fish and game. If I'm out brush crafting and I have an eight-inch blade on my side, no one's going to bother me here. But if I'm carrying that weapon, I better be engaged engaged in some sort of activity, or just finished it on my way home or at home and on my way to an activity like that, if I have the knife on or about my person. Some people say that with a machete, some people don't. On your own property, generally you can carry anything you want when it regards to a knife. But a hatchet, axe, or machete generally doesn't fall under that scope at all, and there's no gray area. So generally, I don't think you're walking around with a 10-inch knife on your side or an 18-inch machete anyway, or even an axe or a hatchet. But if you get into a position where, you know, I was just out brushcrafting and the guy doesn't believe you, hey, you know, uh, with the axe or the axe or the hatchet, you have less of, a, of an argument, I think, there. Uh, because it, it actually sells the concept that that's what you were doing. That's what people use for those. But they're extremely utilitarian. They'll do things that even a machete won't do and acting like a hammer. I really like tomahawks uh, for this purpose, especially tomahawks that have one side kind of a flat hammer end. Extremely utilitarian. Uh, you can carry a much lighter uh, tomahawk than an axe and actually get a lot more power with a tomahawk because of its of its design. It's a very ingenious design. I also like the axes. I have one of the little Gerber camping axes with a little knife that goes up into the handle. It's a very short axe. I like it because it's compact. Probably do a review of that soon, too. It doesn't handle. It's a little bit too short. Um, I, if I was going to buy one of the Gerber axe combinations, again, I'd probably buy the one that's a little bit longer. Uh, but we're going to go put it through its paces while we're at a bug out location. I'll let you know more about that. Just know I think you should have an axe, an axe a hatchet, or a tomahawk as part of your repertoire as a prepper. All right, so uh, moving on from there, I also think that you really need to have some sort of water filtration uh, technology, some way to, uh, to filter water. 
Uh, and I don't want you to use a dirty sock unless it's a last resort. And I'm glad that some people know how to do that, but I sure as hell don't want to if I don't have to. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about water purification like tablets or chemical purification or the knowledge that you can boil water and make it clean. I'm talking about actual water filtration. We have two great sponsors you can look at for this. We have Directive21.com uh, with their Berkey Light water filters. Uh, and we have... Um, of course, ready-made resources with the new Lifesaver 4000 water bottle. Two totally different technologies, but great ways to filter water. Um, why filtering? Why is that so important? Uh, first of all, the Lifesaver 4000 uh, from ready-made resources will actually, it filters so such fine particulates uh, that it will filter bacteria and viruses. It will make any water safe to drink. So it's a purification and filtration method in of itself. Some of the better Berkey uh, systems uh, you can get from Directive 21, they, uh, they will actually filter down and make some of the worst water in the world clean and safe to drink. But beyond that, we all know we can boil water, and by boiling it, we can make it safe. But... Boiling it doesn't necessarily make it palatable. I was just recently on the Handgun Podcast with Eric Shelton, and he said, I'm, re- I'm relying on boiling and chemical purification methods. What am I missing? I said, you may be drinking some muddy, murky, black, gross-tasting, gritty water. And he said, well, yeah, maybe I, I didn't really think about that, but you know, I'll get by if I have to. I'm like, well, fine, but uh, you're single, Eric. What about all you guys out there that are married, have kids and wives? You're going to feed your eight-year-old little girl, muddy water, you think she's going to be happy to drink it? You think you're going to get her to drink it? Do you realize that you could be in a situation where it's imperative that people drink for to, you know for danger dangers of dehydration? Do you want to fight that battle when everything else is stressful? I don't. So I think filtration is a huge advantage, and it's something that you should have the ability to do. And um, I think that it makes a lot of sense to invest in that type of technology as well, and it's something that belongs in your gear repertoire. It's great that you can boil water. It's great that you can make an improvised filter. I think you should know how to do those things, but I also think you should have proper equipment for it as well. Next is something that's on everybody's list, and that's fire starting equipment. But let me tell you what I mean when I say fire starting. I don't care if you're good with a bow drill and a hand drill. I, I really don't. I hope you are. I think, though, again, we're talking about a great skill to learn, a great skill to master, a great skill to own. Uh, I'm good with a bow drill. I'm okay with a hand drill. I really don't like using a hand drill. Uh, I figure it's not much harder, and I can pretty much make a bow drill from the same type of equipment that I can find out there to make a hand drill, so why make myself work harder? I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about lighters. Good old-fashioned Zippos and Bics, right, as one implement. I'm talking about matches. I'm talking about, yes, a flint steel or ferrule rod. Um, I also, there's a new primitive technology, if you want to call it that, out there. I've seen advertised in a few magazines. I'm going to pick one up. And basically, it's like a piston. And it looks like a little wooden, it almost looks like a duck call. But it's got a, uh, a long rod that goes into it with a handle. And you take a little bit of tinder and you stick that in there and you smack it. It works like a diesel engine. The compression of the air gets so hot, it ignites the tinder. Those are pretty much surefire. As long as you have dry tinder, those will work. So adding one of those, not a bad idea, but still modern fire-making uh, methods. Another thing that you can pick up dirt cheap, they're about 3 bucks. You can pick up a few of these and toss them in different places in the house. And you'll always have kind of a modern-slash-primitive method of uh, fire starting is uh, the little sparker tools for a welder's torch. 
Most of you have probably seen them. If you haven't, if you've ever seen a welder, they have this little metal thing, and they turn the torch on, and then they scrape it, and little sparks come out of it. It's just a flint on the end of kind of a, a tensioned piece of wire that allows it to go across a striker. Those in cotton balls, you can make all the fires you want. Uh, and again, they're dirt cheap. I uh, picked that up. It was either Wilderness Way or Backwoodsman Magazine. There was an article about those, uh, and I thought it was really cool. But you get my point. Multiple methods of being able to start fires. If you have matches, make sure they're sealed and they're in a waterproof environment. Even if they're in a drawer in your house, throw them in a Ziploc bag. You don't know when you're going to deal with a flood. You really don't. Um, I probably should have put Ziploc bags on this list. They're not on the list. Consider them a bonus item. Uh, the next thing I think you should definitely have is a good pair of gloves. I'm not talking about surgical gloves for, you know, first aid or for contaminated environments. They're probably not a bad idea either. Call that another bonus item. I'm talking about good, solid leather work gloves. I think everybody in the family, unless we're talking about little kiddos that can't pick things up, infant age, should have a good pair of work gloves. Um, if you're in a situation where you have fallen trees or damage to housing and you're trying to, you know, uh, to, to, to extricate somebody or extricate things or put things just clean up and put things back together. An emergency situation is not a time for additional injuries, especially injuries to the fingers and hands. They're the one thing that we rely upon most is our hands and our fingers. Our opposable thumbs are what separates us from most of the animal kingdom, that and our brains. So we don't want to risk injury to them, uh, be it acute injury from cuts or sustained long-term injuries such as calluses and blisters and things like that. So a good quality pair of work gloves for every able-bodied member of the family. They'll also double as kind of a cold weather gear, uh, but don't rely on them for that. If you have to deal with cold weather situations, make sure you have gloves that are designed for that environment as well, but they're kind of a first layer of defense against cold. Uh, so make sure that that is something you guys have. Next, I think that you should have a winch on your vehicles uh, between being able to extricate yourself, being able to move things out of the road, uh, or being able to help other people get out of the road. And there's even like small winches, portable winches now that can hook up to a car that normally wouldn't be able to use a winch where you can put them underneath an axle or something like that and basically plug them into a cigarette lighter. And uh, they're not the most powerful winches out there, but let's face it, if you don't have a truck to mount a winch to, whatever you're pulling is probably a lot smaller and lighter than the average truck anyway. If you can't do a winch, I suggest you at least get something called a come-along. A come-along is kind of a manual winch. It has kind of a ratcheting action, sort of like running a, uh, a hydraulic jack. But it's a set of straps. You put them out, and it gives you a huge mechanical advantage, and a very small person can drag a very heavy weight. Uh, at one time hunting as a kid when my uncle shot a bear, uh, the bear was way down the side of a mountain. You couldn't get kind of a vehicle in from the bottom, only from the top. It was really steep. It was a fairly large bear. It was over 300 pounds. Um, and a bear, when it's dead, has this, this jelly-like consistency to it. It's, you know, I guess you could wait around for it to get rigor mortis, and then five guys can probably drag it up that hill. But what they did is they hooked up the come-along to a tree, and they would drag it up to a certain level, and then they moved the come-along further up, and we'd winch it up again. And we did that about five times and got it up over the crest to the road, and we were able to get it into the vehicle. Uh, that could have been an, a, a downed human being that I wasn't strong enough to lift and I could have used to come along to actually drag somebody up a hill. I uh, know it's rough. I know it's something that you don't want to do to somebody. You don't want to be dragging a guy that's injured across rocks. Hopefully you can wrap a tarp around him or something to help him. But in a situation like that, you've got to get the person out. Leaving them and going for help may not be an option. 
So anything from extricating a vehicle to dragging an injured person to removing a, a large game animal to pulling a tree uh, that's fallen onto your shed off of it, uh, come-alongs or winches can help you with that. That's why I think they belong kind of in your uh, bag of tricks, so to speak. Uh, the next one, I think you really should own a generator. If nothing else, go out and get you one of those little cheap, low-end, $220, 1,800-kilowatt generators. Uh, at least you'll be able to run some basic utilities. Get yourself enough gas to run that thing continuously at, let's say, half-draw for at least two weeks. With those guys you're talking about, maybe 20 gallons of gas, they sip gas. Uh, bigger generator, you need to keep more gasoline. If you're worried about the gas going bad, you can put Stabil in it. It helps, but the best thing you can do is every week take one of your gas cans... Dump that into your car, put the empty gas can into your car or truck. When you go fill the car up, refill the can and put it in the back of the line and just keep doing that. And that will keep your gas rotated, whether it's gasoline you're saving for your generator or gasoline you're saving for your vehicle. But a generator is a huge asset. In some situations, it can be a life-saving tool. Um, Johnny Max was on the show. They had a little infant at the time that the last big hurricane, or not the last big hurricane, but a couple hurricanes ago. Power was out for a week. Um, generator would barely run an air conditioner, but it would run an air conditioner. So they put the air conditioner in a window, hooked the generator up to it, and made one-room air conditioner. It kept the baby there from overheating, uh, because as soon as the hurricane rolled through, the Houston uh, humidity and heat came in. It was up over 100 degrees and about 90% humidity with all that moisture left behind. So in that situation, a, ge a generator was a life-saving tool. It could be a convenience item or a life-saving tool. That's why I think you should have one. Uh, it is not a long-term solution to your power being out. So that's why I'm also big on having at least some level of backup power source. I think building or buying a solar generator would be a great idea. Um, and that's just basically a box with some batteries in it and all the electronics that are needed and a good solar panel somewhere in the 50-watt 50, 50 range probably uh, to give a good level of charge to your battery banks. Bigger is better, of course. But even if you just have a battery backup system without the solar power that you can keep plugged into the wall and use a normal battery charger to charge, that's great. The other thing you can do if you have a small generator is if, let's say, there's times of the day you're not using as much power, run the generator, use the generator to charge the battery backup system, okay? And then later on, maybe at night where you need more lighting and things like that, the battery backup system, unlike the generator, can come into the house so you don't have extension cords run over all over the place and you extend your ability. Even if you have a powerful generator, you extend your distribution capability and you have an ability at some point at night, if you're not worried about running like heating or cooling and you don't need the power of that generator, you just need a little bit of lighting and maybe a radio to shut the generator off, conserve the gasoline, and move the, uh, the battery backup system anywhere in the home that you want to because it's extremely portable and have, you know, at least if you wake up in the night, the ability to turn some lights on until you get your, uh, your, your, your flashlight torch would have you. So I think that when you combine a simple backup system in a low-end generator or a high-end backup system in a high-end generator, either way, you give yourself a tremendous more amount of flexibility than either one of them give you alone. So it's really something to think about making part of your goals for acquisition over time and your prepping. Uh, next, I think, is everybody should own a good set of hand tools and learn how to use them. I'm talking about saws, chisels, hammers, screwdrivers, wrenches, um, anything that doesn't require electricity. And I will add to that rechargeable tools. I have an 18-volt cordless DeWalt drill. If you're going to buy a cordless drill, buy a DeWalt. Everything else is second, in my opinion. 
And I know some people love Makitas and what have you, but the wall. I, I used to work in the, I mentioned the underground construction industry. We did mostly cable television. And uh, the drill that every uh, splicer carried, and these were guys, they lived on piecework. In other words, the more splices and the more tie-ins they did in a day, the more money they made. And if they didn't do a bunch of them, they didn't make any money at all. And they had to rely on their equipment. Every single one of them climbing up a pole or going down into a hole was carrying a yellow drill. There's a reason. Now, why will I put rechargeable drills and rechargeable replicating sauce and things like that into the handhold category? Because if you have a generator, <coughs> if you have a battery backup system, uh, for a very long time after you lose power, you can at least charge them back up, and they don't require themselves to be plugged in to operate. So they extend your capabilities beyond what simple hand tools do. But I think you need simple hand tools, including things like the good old-fashioned drill that you you know you hold one hand on and you turn it, because when that hand when that electric drill won't run, you still might need to put a hole in something. Uh, so spoke shaves, planes, all the good old-fashioned woodworking and metalworking equipment, snips, pliers, uh, cutters, all those tools. I think you should, over time, develop a very good tool collection and, again, the knowledge to use them. If you have to go take a part-time job or work for free as an apprentice somewhere to learn basic construction, do it. It's one of the most valuable skills that a man or a woman can have. By knowing the basics of framing and roofing, and I mean the very basics, right, and how to cut square and plumb and level, you can save thousands on a single project. I mean, let's just think... Uh, Kind of logically here, what do one of those prefab sheds that you see out in front of Home Depot or Lowe's cost? Three, four thousand dollars. There's not but about a thousand dollars worth of materials in those things. If you can basically frame, paint, put roofing shingles on, and do the very basics that are required, you can build a three or four thousand dollar shed for about a thousand dollars and a few weekends worth of your own labor. But you can't do it without tools. You can't do it without knowledge. That's why I think both of them are so valuable. And there's so many other things. That's just one example of what can be done. And let's face it, if you can build that little shed, then you can build two or three of them that are all hooked together, and basically you've built a small house. And it doesn't take a genius to learn how to do this. People have been doing basic wood and stone construction for millions, for thousands and thousands of years. So if they can do it, you can do it. All I'm saying is have the tools and the knowledge to be able to avail yourself of the opportunities that are out there, especially once you own a little bit of land. If you own five or six acres, you'd be amazed what you can do with some tools and some construction knowledge and construction ability, even to do things like building wildlife attracting things to bring wildlife into your area, creating squirrel feeders and nesting boxes. If you live in a wetlands area, maybe building wood duck boxes and things like that. Very simple projects. But the first time you try them, it's going to be harder than you think. You look at the diagram, and I cut this, and I put it in. It's not square, and I can't get it to work. You'll only learn by experience, and the first time it's not going to be right. So, again, consider even if it takes volunteering or a free apprenticeship or a part-time job, doing something to get around people that really know the trade well because you'll learn much faster that way than you will trying to do it all on your own. The next one is uh, maps, and uh, I'll include atlases with that. Um, I think you need to have not just the maps I always talk about, which, of course, are you go to Google Maps, you figure out three locations that you would head off to if you had to leave your home, and you plot three routes to each of those three locations, and you plot a rally point on each of those three three routes. Those are great. 
but I think you should have good solid maps of the city that you live in, the towns around you, your state, a national atlas at minimum. And everybody that might ever have to navigate on foot or in vehicle should be instructed on how to use a map, how to understand a legend, the map key, understand scale, Understand that just because it says, you know, that an inch is 100 miles or an inch is, is 10 miles and there's 5 inches, that's not necessarily 50 miles, how to trace the road and actually determine if I were to walk this road, how far is it, or I'm going to drive this road, how far is this really? Uh, so maps and the skills to use them are hugely important. I think it's great to have topographical maps of your area beyond just street and city maps. Uh, let's face it, if you have to walk somewhere on foot, if there's an 800-foot vertical rise and drop between you and there, uh, you might want to go around that if it's possible. You might want to be looking for what's called you know, a hollow or a spur to work your way through that without actually having to go directly over the middle of it. You won't know that with just a city map. Uh, of course, you'd like the state of the roads if you can, but there's times where you can't or you should not. So again, good, good solid road maps, atlas, your evacuation maps and topographical maps of your area or any area that you might be going to. Really good idea to have. Um, and the nice thing is a lot of that can be downloaded and printed out today. So it doesn't really cost anything. Uh, next is, on the navigation theories, a GPS and a compass. I think everybody should own a GPS. At least one in the household can get them for under 100 bucks now. I would probably invest a little bit more, but they are so, so valuable, especially to the reluctant spouse. If you pre-program it with a bunch of destinations, and uh, if you're the, the person that's uh, into this and paying attention and you have all the stuff and you've already gone through it in your head and you're prepared and you only have one GPS, put it in the other spouse's car. So you can get them on the phone and say, or on the radio or whatever method of communication you have available, say, turn it on. Push this button, this button, and this button. See that location? Click on that. Go there. It can be that simple if you have that. Now, a lot of people are opposed to the GPS because they say, well, in certain situations, they may not work. Well, in certain situations, your car may not work. Are you going to stop using your car? Will you, during an emergency where your car does work, not use it because, well, it might stop working? Or will you use it until the point at which it's no longer useful? Right down to the point, if you get it to a bug out location, it's the end of the world scenario, all the tinfoil hat people were right, and your car's never going to run again because peak oil's hit, and there's no more gas, and the streets are burning, and you're safe up in your little mountain retreat. Will you not even begin then to strip the vehicle down and use the components and parts? You'll use every bit of the device as long as it's functional. And when it's no longer functional, you just figure out what else you can do with it. That's how I view a GPS. So GPS, yes. Compass, absolutely. Um, Generally speaking, uh, if the sun's shining, you can drop me off anywhere, and within a few minutes, as long as I know that I'm in the northern hemisphere, I can tell you east and west, and even in the southern hemisphere, I can tell you east and west. Just be nice to know where I am before you ask me to do it. Because the sun always rises in the east and sets in the west, no matter where I'm at in the world, but it's helpful to know. Uh, at least longitude, latitude. I don't think you're going to have that problem, not knowing kind of how far north or south you are. Um, so sun shining, a lot of the, the primitive skills people say, what need do I have of a compass? Well, sometimes it gets dark out. Sometimes, like right now, the entire sky is gray. And I, I know north, south, east, and west looking out of my office window here. Uh, but if you just set me here and I woke up in this room for the first time in my life, there's no way right now that I could determine uh, where anywhere is because the sky looks the same brightness everywhere because of the cloud scatter. 
Sometimes it's dark and it's nighttime. And yes, I can use celestial navigation, but what if it's cloudy and I can't see the stars? What if I'm in the middle of a city and I have so much city skyscape I can't really get a good view of the stars? What if it's not that the power is out but I need to get somewhere because there's problems and all that city light is drowning out the starlight so I can't use the stars for navigation? There are so many times when you may need a compass. And again, the skill of using a map with a compass and being able to get where you want to go and making sure that, again, everybody, I, I keep beating on this, but folks, there are so many people that can't read a map. And I think another skill you need to work with people in your home on is drawing a map, hand-drawing maps, and understanding that north is up. People that draw maps where north is left or right on the map drive me crazy. If you understand maps, it is almost impossible to read it without rotating it and saying, okay, now this is up. And what they're doing is they don't understand direction, so they're drawing it based on where they're at and where they're going. Like from here you go up. Well, it might not be up. It's just up because they're facing that direction. You have to teach people the basic directions. I know this sounds like real basics, but fellas, go ask your wife to draw a map between your house and the mall and see if she puts north up. She does, leave it alone. She doesn't, you got some work to do. Because it may be something that people rely on someday for a member of your family to be able to tell somebody else where you're at. And it is that important. And again, in a panic situation, if you're not good at doing it when it doesn't matter, you're going to be terrible at doing it when it does matter. Um, the next thing is tents or some sort of shelter. I think that there's a huge advantage to having something like that available to you. Now, when it comes to tents and camping gear in general, I'm one of those people that tell you that if your plan, if the shit hits the fan, and I mean the big, giant boom hit the fan, it's flying everywhere, folks, and uh, the economy's collapsed, and it's, it's nationwide panic, moving to a campground is probably a bad idea, because like a billion other people are going to think of that, too, and be there, and they'll rape the land of whatever is available. Uh, it'll be a dangerous situation, and I think you better have a better plan than that. And uh, if you're going to do it, it better be way deep back, and you better have preps made, and you better have stores in advance, because odds are that uh, it's not going to be as easy as some people think. That doesn't negate camping equipment in general, and especially tents and shelters is, is something to have for preparations. Because remember, that scenario is the least likely scenario that we face. The bigger scenario is maybe there's something that affects you at a state level or a small regional level. And uh, if you don't have the funds or don't want to spend the funds to go stay in a hotel, if you don't have a bug-out location with a house on it, if you don't have a relative you can go stay with, then camping out for a few days in a state park or a national forest somewhere ain't a bad idea. So for the short-term acute situation, it's useful. If you're on your way to a location that's going to be kind of your safe location and things are not so dangerous that you can't stop occasionally and rest, uh, get some sleep, things like that, which may be very important if it's safe enough to do so, having some level of structure that you can use, even if you're traveling by vehicle, is very valuable as well. And then addition, in addition to that, spending some time out camping will help you develop your skill sets, and it's going to be a lot, and I know some of you are, I'm a tough woodsman, and I'm going to go out in the woods, and I'm going to take my knife, and that's it, and I'm going to go out there alone. Well, that's great, but it's not going to do a lot to teach your five-year-old daughter about how to take care of herself, and she's not going to enjoy going with you, and you're not going to take her with you. So basic family camping is a great 
environment to start thinking about how would we do without things. To to just and, it, and it's also an acclimation tool. And what I mean by that is is kids that have been camping five or six times uh, for two or three day trips and have gone without video games and without TVs and without computers are going to make it through a two week blackout in their own home a hell of a lot better than kids that never have. So I think there's a tremendous amount of flexibility there. As far as tents, I actually like the smaller dome tents. Not the itty-bitty ones, but the relatively small dome tents. They're easier to pack. They're lighter. They, uh, they'll go anywhere. And I've had experiences where back when I was broke and all I could afford was one of these small dome tents, uh, I was out on a lakeside uh, with an old girlfriend. This is many years, almost 20 years ago. And a huge Texas thunderstorm rolled in. And, I mean, it was bad. It was so bad. We probably should have evacuated. But, frankly, where we were, there was nowhere to go. So we went in our tent, and uh, my buddy who was with me with his his two kids and his wife, they went in their tent. He had been making fun of my tent because they had one of these great big metal tents. Well, I started hearing, like, some really noisy situation, and next thing I know, they're in the truck, and we're looking out of our tent. And we sat in the tent, and the, the top of that tent literally blew down and almost touched our face, I'd say about 20 times as that storm passed through. The tent barely got wet inside. It certainly didn't get damaged in any way. The next day we opened it up. We hung up our hung up our sleeping bags to make sure they dried fully out. Opened up all the vents. The tent dried out. It was fine. Uh, his tent was destroyed. It was absolutely destroyed. It looked like somebody took a sledgehammer to all the metal poles because the metal poles didn't give with the wind, so they had to give permanently with the wind. Um, so that's why I prefer kind of the flexible pole-style uh, dome tent more than anything else. So I've actually been out, I've used it, I've been through harsh weather with it, and I've seen that even though it might be a little bit more likely to have some leakage, uh, it's more likely to survive the event. And that's why I'm big on folks when I say, you know, uh, tents and camping gear and getting out there and taking the family camping, spending a day or two out in the woods, even if it's just a local park uh, that's not very far away that you could run to the store if you wanted to. You won't know how your gear performs unless you try it. And that's why I'm not, maybe I'll be, I'm not big on let's run off to the woods if something happens, but many of the situations you have to deal with when you go into the bush, you will have to deal with at home if we take away the systems of support. Can't go to the grocery store, power is out, no water, same as being in the woods, except you're lucky you have this great big structure to stay inside. So that solves one of your problems, but it doesn't solve all your problems. So that's why I'm big on some level of the bushcraft as well. And even if it's not bushcraft, just basic good old family family camping. Um, the next thing, totally different, going a different way now, I think everybody should own a good grain grinder. I think you should make whole grains part of your storage plan. I think you should learn to cook them. I don't think you should go out and buy a 1,000 pounds of wheat tomorrow in a grinder and say, okay, now I'm ready for the apocalypse. I think you should go out and buy a couple pounds of wheat tomorrow and start playing with it and learning how to make different things with it and get a grinder. And I think you should learn how to grind wheat and make fresh bread, to, to, to grind wheat and make bulgur, to grind wheat and make anything you can come up with. Get a good cookbook on it. Uh, get a copy that's coming out of James Talmadge Stevens' book, Making the Best of Basics. It's available for pre-order on my site right now. Uh, the old edition had a ton of recipes for wheat. I'm sure that the new edition will have those recipes, and if not, more. 
great book. Highly recommend it. Again, Making the Best of Basics by James Talmadge Stevens. It is the best-selling book on preparations in the history of books on preparations. Sold over 800,000 copies. Next edition is not in print yet. Will be very, very shortly. You can pre-order it on my site if you'd like to do that. Go to my site. Uh, center column, you'll see a, a list of the pages on the site beyond the posts and the, and the updates. In the second or third one down on that will say book list. Click on book list. Uh, and it'll be the first book on the list. That's how highly I think of it. Uh, on that note, anything on that book list are books that are actually on my shelf or on my Kindle. I don't recommend books that I don't own and read in value. Uh, but a grain grinder, huge, huge thing. And this is another one. Don't cheap out. Don't go buy that little $40 grinder that doesn't really do a good job and doesn't have a lot of settings and can't get really fine grinds and really coarse grinds. you got to settle for one or the other. Get something that does it all. This is another thing. Your great-grandkids will have the dadgone thing if you buy a good one. And uh, it doesn't just grind wheat, folks. It grinds rye. It grinds corn. Um, it's amazing what you can do with corn if you have a grinder. Making your own cornmeal, uh, making your own corn tortillas. There's just a tremendous... Corn becomes a new substance for you when you have a grinder and you learn how to do things with it. So really, really recommend a grinder... Uh, the next thing I'm going to kind of lead up to the last one with this, something I don't own yet. And I'm either going to build one or buy one once we move. I just don't want one more thing to add to all the crap that we're going to have to move to Arkansas when we make our, our big bug out next year, which will be a planned and chosen bug out, which just means getting out of the city and permanently going to the country. Um, but it's a fruit press. If you have a fruit press and you have some apple trees and pear trees and maybe you have some wild uh, things that you can harvest, wild grapes, muscadines, uh, that fruit press can make wine, it can make jelly, it can make juice, it can help you make jam. It can do so many dadgone things. And it's a very difficult thing to really get the juice out of fruit without a fruit press. Yeah, you can take grapes and step on them or whatever, but uh, especially when you look at hard fruits like apples and pears. And apple juice is great, and apple cider is really good. And apple cider that's mixed with honey and before it's fermented that makes sizer is amazing. Uh, so a fruit press, I think, is a really great thing to add to kind of your repertoire. And it's, uh, again, something I don't own yet. Just about everything else on this list I own. Um, I'll, you know, full disclosure, I don't own a fruit press, but I think you should. And uh, I will soon. Last thing I think you should own and learn how to use is brewing equipment. I think everybody should learn how to make beer and or wine. Uh, and I'll add to wine mead, which is honey wine. And I know some people aren't drinkers, and that's fine. And if you're not a drinker and you're never going to drink, maybe you don't need to do this, but I still think you have a tremendous barter tool. Um, let's say that I was injured because trees fell on my house and there were trees all up and down the neighborhood and there, the stores were closed and no one could get to the store and uh, I needed some neighbor to come uh, cut the trees off my house if if my next door neighbor needs that help as well because he just doesn't know how to do it because he's a yuppie and uh, he offers the guy a $20 bill and I offer the guy a 12 pack if the guy's a drinker he's going he's gonna to clear my driveway first in that situation uh, it's been seen time and time again in uh, ice storms and uh, hurricanes and things like that. The best barter implement for the Joe six-packs that have all the tools and the skills is some six-packs. So I think that long-term that it would be one of the better barter items in the world. So being able to make wines and beer uh, gives you a tremendous opportunity for barter. And I think wines are more important because to make beer we need grain. 
And grain is not the easiest thing to grow in large quantities for the small-time individual. But if we know how to make wine, then everything around us that's a fruit or a source of sugar becomes a potential for wine. Um, we can make wine out of grapes like they've done for, for millennia. But we can also make wine out of blueberries. We can make wine out of raspberries. Uh, we can make wine out of muscadines, which are a form of wild grape. We can make wine out of dandelions as long as we can find a short source of sugar. Actually, marigold wine is a wonderful wine. Uh, dandelion wine, there's two ways we can make it. We can make kind of a light, fruity table wine out of dandelion blossoms, or we can dig up the roots and use the roots to make uh, a sherry, uh, a dry sherry substitute. So there's a tremendous amount that we can do with brewing equipment and the knowledge to know how to brew, and it gives us a tremendous amount of barter capability as well. And I'll tell you what, it's fun, folks. Uh, there's a reason that people become obsessed with it as a hobby, uh, because it's fun and it produces something that's really special. And with that, that's going to what I'm going to end up today with. And I know there's only 18 items there, and there's a million more things I could name, and I know I left your pet item off the list. But you know what? Show up at the site today, the survivalpodcast.com, in the comment section, and suggest items to add to this list. Let's grow it. Maybe I'll do another show with 18 more items all suggested by you. Please just don't flame me because I can't believe you didn't mention because I will delete your comment because I don't need that nonsense because I explained it. And I'm really tired of uh, what Dave Wendell calls the armchair survivalist. Uh, if you want to hear more about armchair survivalist, uh, show up tomorrow and uh, listen to tomorrow's show with Dave Wendell. Hopefully you enjoyed today's show. Uh, by the time you're listening to tomorrow's show, know that I am sitting on uh, a mountaintop uh, in my backyard, probably enjoying a warm cup of coffee, looking at probably a rainstorm for what the weather forecasts for us tomorrow, but I'm going to be loving it anyway. We'll be shooting a lot of video for you guys up there, a lot of stuff to review. We'll try to put something together just for the members as well, for the Member Support Brigade video section. And uh, with that, I'll sign off. This has been Jack Spirito with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.